This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly, the playoffs then. Joyous, gut-wrenching, emotional, fraught, all of those things. So many stories. There are going to be a lot more Luton corners next season. They're in the Premier League. It took penalties over Coventry with one of their key men cheering from a hospital bed. That journey from non-league to the top tier. Now with a manager sacked by their local rivals this season. And then Sheffield Wednesday, a Windass Wembley special with his dad watching on after that comeback in the semi-final. Everyone loves Darren Moore. Some big sides in the championship next year. Barnsley's still probably not quite sure why they didn't get a penalty before the red card and Carlisle a local lad scoring the winning penalty the manager Paul Simpson getting one over his son part of the Stockport coaching setup some long trips for the rest of League One Archie will join us to talk through that Dortmund disappointment all that plus your questions and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly on the panel today Barry Glendening welcome hello they were at all three playoff finals. They must be absolutely shattered. Uh, Ali Maxwell, hello. Hello, how are we? Good, thank you. Sani Rajavajala, hello. Hello, hello, yes, yeah, still alive. Uh, good stuff. And uh, joining us as a fan, Holy Faye Carruthers. Welcome, Faye. Hello. <laughs> um, you've had a couple of days to let it sink in, but can you take us back to the penalty shootout, please? Given what was at stake, Faye, how stressful was that? Oh, my God. I mean, it was so Luton. We do not do things the easy way at all. Uh, To be honest, I still have tinnitus from Joe Taylor's goal that wasn't a goal because my friend behind me grabbed me and just screamed in my ear because that's definitely not a Luton thing to do to to score just before um, penalties were going to be taken. Although we had done that, we did have a an extra time goal with Claude Nakba in uh, in 2009 when we won the Johnson's Paint Trophy. But that that was like every single roller coaster of emotions all in one that entire game. Um, I, I just I still don't believe it. I've had you say I've had two days to. Let it sink in. It hasn't sunk in. You can probably hear that from my voice. I feel as if I'm just it on some other planet and it's not happening to my club. It's really surreal. Um, I've had many out-of-body experiences over the last few days. Um, but that penalty shootout, so me and my mum were literally manifesting and I feel really bad for Darbo for this and I'm so sorry but every single Coventry and look every fan does this every Coventry player that stepped up is like miss he's gonna miss he's gonna fly this over the crossbar I kind of knew that we were gonna score all our penalties I know that sounds really stupid I had a feeling it was gonna go to sudden death I, I still couldn't quite believe it when the I mean god that the poor guy it, it's awful for it to end for anybody who's the person that misses, it's horrible. But I really, really felt for him and I felt for Coventry. And, you know, a, a lot of what we talked about after the game was feeling sorry for them, which just, again, shows what our club is all about. We thought about Coventry before thinking about ourselves. Although you were you were going miss, miss, miss to all of them, just to, just to be clear. you were. <laughs> I know, I know. Thank you for highlighting that. I also, uh, it's really funny, I, I, I didn't, you know, in those kind of moments, phones are, are, are nothing. And I didn't, so any of the immediate aftermath, it was just hugging people, screaming, crying, everything else. And my mum my actually sent me a video yesterday and she just caught me looking over just after the penalty shootout and in in floods of tears 
and just going, oh my God. And all you can hear me doing is going, oh, 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 <laughs> <It's> like <laughs> making these really random sounds in the background um, because it was just, just, just incredible. In- incre- and listen, Max, I know last time we spoke leading into this, um, you were like, no, I don't hate Luton. I don't hate Luton. It's all that. But, and I know it will have hurt you a little bit, but even you, no. when you saw the sea of orange must have been like, oh, wow, this is incredible. Like genuinely, like any kind of, there's no real rivalry, right? There isn't because it's so, I've always just, said that to be annoying <laughs> more than anything else like I think I would have been totally delighted for either team right because of their stories but that you know that journey is great and we'll we'll, we'll get on to that I, Barry do you I found myself through all these games getting quite emotional I don't know if it's because I'm really sleep deprived at the moment because I have a small child but penalty shootouts even when I've got no skin in the game I'm sort of welling up at moments are you? Um, oh, no, I'm not welling up, but maybe I'm just a monster, Max. Um, Possibly. I, I find them incredibly tense, where even if I don't care who wins or not. And then this game, I literally did not care who won. I, I would have been equally pleased for either side and equally disappointed for whoever lost. And, you know, for a neutral, playoff finals are just superb. They are fantastic. And I saw someone saying that that the playoffs aren't fair, that, you know, Sheffield Wednesday got 94 points. They should go up because they finished third. And But you need the playoffs to have some jeopardy in these divisions for the final weeks of the season, because otherwise you'd just have loads and loads of dead rubber games. But, yeah, so to answer your question, no, I don't get emotional, but I find them incredibly tense unbearably tense and that's for someone who doesn't have any emotional investment in either team I mean I still remember watching that playoff final the famous playoff final between Sunderland and Charlton and I I was in a pub called the International Bar in Dublin and that was just oh cry nerve shredding it was horrendous and then I've attended a couple of uh, Sunderland playoff finals they've won one they lost one and they're yeah, they're they're not nice. They're not nice. No, no. When we got out of the conference, it was against Gateshead, and we were two one up, and there was ten minutes of injury time or something, and we were down to ten because our centre back had got injured. We'd made all our subs, and I just couldn't breathe for all of it. They missed a couple of chances. You're like, ah, oh, imagine. Um, objectively, Ali, Sani, you were there. Uh, Ali, do you think Luton deserved it? Yes, no. It's so hard to say because the teams couldn't be separated in 90 minutes. Luton were much the better team in the first half and then uh, Coventry were much the better team in the second half. In extra time, there were a few lively moments at either end. It, it sort of opened up weirdly in the last few minutes, which doesn't often happen in, in extra time periods. Um, and then even, you know, as Faye, as much as she manifested a lot of misses for Coventry players, they, like the Luton players, the first five of them at least, were fantastic penalties. So, you know, objectively... I don't want it to sound weird, but no, not not necessarily deserved it due to their performance on the day. I think the teams were very much level uh, in terms of the, you know, the the story that leads up to it and the last decade of Luton Town. Absolutely, without doubt, it's one of the greatest promotions that I've had the pleasure of covering. And you know, if I could leave objectivity behind for a moment, you talk about emotions. For me, there as a neutral, for some reason. 
the thing that always hits me hardest is is watching the players and and un- trying to understand what it must feel like to stare up at 30 40,000 people who are so obsessed with you in that moment and so uh, keen to celebrate you and then by extension thinking about their own paths to that point uh, i think 10 maybe even a dozen of Luton Town squad have played non-league football in their career uh, many of them on loan but some of them had to drop all the way down in order to work their way back up again and so uh, that's what makes me emotional as a neutral is trying to understand that journey and then that feeling uh, and I'll never feel anything like that but it must be absolutely incredible just going back to Max's emotional incontinence it's worth noting and reminding people that Max cries when he sees a YouTube video of a raccoon eating fruit and cries <laughs> at the backstories of the contestants on Pop Idol. So <laughs> it's hardly surprising you're reduced to floods of tears by the sight of a young man missing a potentially life-changing penalty. <laughs> when, when, I've, when I'm hungover, the raccoons really get me. Um, um, what did you make of it, Sally? One of my best friends is a, is a Luton fan. And because... I was working in that I was there principally for this, uh, but I didn't have to do anything on the day. So I actually, you know, met up with him uh, and, and all his family in a pub and had a couple of drinks for uh, them, made my way to Wembley. And just had a, a really nice time. And I was with him when Luton lost on penalties in the conference final against another side with a load of history behind them, Wimbledon. And when it got to penalties, I, I thought back to that and thought, no, this can't happen again. And I thought of Faye and all the other Luton fans, you know, they must be also having, they've got all that behind them, you know, all weighing on them going into it. And, you know, in amongst all the all the tension and the chaos and, and the carnage and how it ended, you know, there was that, that brilliant uh, a classic Wembley goal, wasn't there, from with uh, Elijah Adebayo down at left-hand side, you know. One of the few times where turning a defender inside out actually does apply, you know, he did down the left-hand side, and then Jordan Clark was there. So there were some some great moments, you know, there was the heartbreak for Gustavo Hamer equalising and then going off injured. It had a bit of everything, and yeah, in the end, you know, I, although I was neutral, you know, with my mate being a Luton fan, having having been with all of them, you know, his dad was a coach at the club and told me all the stories about the olden days and, you know, they've got all that history and, and everyone seems to know everyone in Luton. And, you know, at full time when I was down on the pitch or, or by the pitch side, you know, everyone's like, oh, are you all right, mate? How are you doing? They all know each other in a real way that like, there's no plastic Luton fans, you know, and it was a, a great moment for them. And, you know, just I'm really excited to see how they'll do in the Premier League. Faye, talk to us about Tom Lockyer because actually that photo it's an amazing photo in the hospital bed. He's got the kind of, you know, the, I don't know what they are, ECG stickers or whatever you have on your uh, chest. His whole family to his left, like. He's still got his socks and shin pads on. I know. Yeah, I know. It's it's amazing. Like, and like throughout the whole game, you, you don't know how he is, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I feel for any man who has to have those ECG stickers on if they have a hairy chest, that, that, that just must be absolute agony. It, it looks like he doesn't as it goes. But, you know. <laughs> but it, it's, it's very... Um, so I put our CEO, Gary Sweet, live on air at, at TalkSport after the game. And um, he was told uh, by Alex Crook, the presenter, that... Um, that Tom's dad had posted this picture and it was just an enormous relief to to all of us because I hadn't seen him go down. I knew he was down. I, if I'm really honest, I thought he'd done his, his ACL because I knew that there'd been nobody around him when he'd gone down, but it very quickly looked 
so serious, especially when the Coventry medical staff came on as well and the um, stretcher came back on and we were all absolutely terrified and, and, you know, all thoughts of football go completely out of your head in that kind of moment and and the game didn't matter I was just thinking of Tom's family sitting there having to watch that being completely helpless and couldn't even imagine what they were what they were going through and and you know praying it was okay to then hear the news that he was and is okay I mean I'm gutted for him the moment you know he would get his moment he's pretty much our captain in waiting I would say now Sonny Bradley is is leaving and he's been fantastic this season he's a huge aerial threat when you then start to think about the football and playing you know the rest of the game 80 minutes plus extra time it ended up being um, without somebody who is such a, a, a threat on set pieces, which is how you know we were hoping we were going to be able to unlock Coventry, was a huge aspect. But also he's such a leader on, on the pitch, and you know the players did very well. Rob Edwards took them all away from the situation um, and made sure that, that that their heads were still in the game because ultimately this is going on. But you still have a game of football that you've got to go and and, and try and win, and that's what is you know it almost feels really really strange so yeah I mean certainly the team are going to be celebrating with him when he's allowed uh, uh, back and he's had plenty of tests and hopefully we'll find out some some good news in a few days about those tests. Ali interesting on 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 Rob Edwards his career his sort of journey because at Forest Green and I watched a lot of them because they went up with Cambridge in League Two they played really lovely football and forgive me Faye it appears Luton really liked to get it launched one of their means of, of winning football matches over the last two years, and, and boy, if they won a lot of them, uh, involved having two uh, incredible for the level physical strikers who can either in combination or even individually uh, bully centre-backs. And I think particularly the, the sort of tactical trends in the Championship, in League One and League Two over the last few years, have not been particularly similar to the Premier League. Um, one of the, the big things that we've seen is, is so many teams play Playing three at the back now and that generally leads to two up top so it's it's almost uh, kind of reversed a little bit um, from what we saw maybe 10 years or so ago when everyone was trying to be a little bit more possession based and play through the thirds actually the the levels that we're playing at here obviously if you can do a Burnley and if you have the talent advantage over the rest of the teams in your division and you have technical players that play international football and are used to playing a certain way probably because they've come through elite academies, then, of course, that is still a fantastic way of, of dominating and winning football matches at any level. But actually, I think for a, for a team that don't have the biggest budget in the league, um, you have to have the ability to go long, to to get rid of the ball when there's pressure on you at the back, to have another way of playing is often how it's sort of described by coaches. And yeah, it does mean going long at times. But you have to have the right players. You have to have recruited, therefore, the right players in order to do that. Otherwise, the ball just comes straight back. Uh, and that front two were sensational particularly in the first half um, and of course playing into them direct plays to, to the strengths and makes the team better uh, I expect that they will probably go the same way in the Premier League uh, what I would say is that Edwards when he came in you know that was more or less the style that was he inherited from Nathan Jones um, what was clear is that he wasn't going to rip things up in the middle of the season when the team were already challenging for the playoffs and he's been very open about that and kind of respecting what was already there for him to work with but I have heard from from those at the club. He does. He definitely implemented more of a passing style out of the back. Um, the the you know if you look at the average passes and the length of passes that the goalkeeper and the defenders have been making since he took charge. You know they have been going shorter and and trying to build through the thirds and work it out wide in particular to the wing backs um, to carry it up the pitch. So 
he's actually implemented more of a mixed style while not sort of changing what was working pretty well for them with Adebayo and Morris up front. Yeah, Ali, Ali says it perfectly. It's just one of our routes to goal. You know, we, we've got many routes to goal and and not just the long ball. It's, you know, lots of people just focus on that because it's a good narrative, isn't it? Oh, they hoof it. But look at... Oh, I'm all here for it. I want them to do it in the Premier League. Go longer. <laughs> Come on. But that ball, as, as Sani mentioned, um, the ball to Elijah Adebayo was from Alfie Doherty and it was pinpoint up into uh, up into the line and you know the skill from Elijah was fantastic because he's not he's not the quickest player uh, but the skill from him to get past and then spot you know not be selfish spot Jordan Clark coming in on the middle it was it was brilliant absolutely brilliant and that that's the kind of thing that that this Luton team can do it's not just you know route one pump it into the box you know it's it's pinpoint passes and and the accuracy of that led to our opening goal which was fantastic and on the Rob Edwards point as well you know I've said this on so many occasions since he came in he's got no ego you know he's very happy to to credit Nathan Jones with the work that he did beforehand and you know comes in and there'll be lots of people who just want to rip things up and you know put their own stamp on it because you know oh well I play a certain brand of football so I'm going to implement this he didn't he just added layers onto what Nathan had already built tweaked a few different different things here and there and actually pushed us on uh, and made us even better than we had been and uh, you know massive credit to him he also I mean listen you, you must hate somebody like Rob Edwards he's a good looking guy he's really humble really nice he's also got an incredible singing voice he picked up the microphone at the after party Bon Jovi's always was put on and he beautifully beautifully having had a few drinks <laughs> sang his way through <laughs> always which was pretty incredible and has a great voice sorry for, I think I really hope that they you know they go with that two up front because they, it would be lovely to see it's that hard balance isn't it you need to get in a bit more quality somewhere but these people have earned it and especially those players who've been all the way from non-league up you really hope that they get their opportunity finally on this part Sani just a word on Coventry you know their story is also great Mark Robbins has been amazing for them and you hope they can have another go at it next year. You sort of fear, given what the championship is going to be like, that they might it might be tough for them. Yeah, this was a, a big, big opportunity for them. Um, and when you think, you know, the main man, Victor Jokeresh, probably won't be there next season. He's been brilliant for them over the last couple of seasons. So, you know, they've got a younger squad, though. And I think that's, that's the thing. Out of the two teams, if you had to pick one that it was now or never, in far as you know, the, the, you know, maybe they won't ever do it again. They've got not got a place to do it. Maybe it was, maybe it was Luton because you know Victor Jokeresh is one of those who might be going. You know, forty goals in just under hundred games, but they've got enough quality elsewhere. You know, someone like Gustavo Hamer, he, he's not the biggest player, but he's been a key player for them. I mean, in stature wise, by the way, and, and you know, I don't think he's going to necessarily make the step up if it's not with Coventry. So perhaps if they keep those players, I think Mark Robbins has signed a new deal as well, hasn't he? So. Um, you know, there's a there's a there's a decent chance for them to do okay next season, but I don't think they're going to be one of those that go from playoffs to relegation, which we've seen before. Um, but yeah, it's it's very sad for them, but I think they've got enough to to at least be there or thereabouts next season. Final word for Faye on 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 this part. I was actually just going to um, shout to Coventry that I feel with the new owner that they have that they're actually the step that we perhaps were last season so we got into the playoffs last season I kept trying to tell everybody it wasn't a fluke it wasn't a fluke as you now see and I think that's going to happen with Coventry again um, next season because they're building something special there as well and doing it the right way 
Well done, Faye. Congratulations. I'm delighted for you. And all of Luke. <laughs> really? Yeah. Thanks, Max. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> Faye Carruthers there. Um, make sure you uh, download the Guardian Women's Football Weekly, which Faye hosts. Uh, she's just recorded that, uh, looking back at uh, Chelsea's win in the WSL. And that'll do for part one. Part two uh, will begin with Sheffield Wednesday's win over Barnsley. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. So the League One playoff final, uh, which was the third of the playoff finals, uh, Sheffield Wednesday win 1-0 uh, against Barnsley. Josh Windass in the 123rd minute. I mean, I guess, Sani and Ali, by this time, you know, this is your third playoff final. You know, they've all gone the distance. I mean, I guess you're still up for it. But was it still an incredible moment, given how knackered you must have been, Ali? It was an incredible moment. I was desperate for a winning goal to be scored and we had to wait until the approximately 360th minute of football for a winning goal for that big moment because penalty shootouts are amazing and horrendous and everyone knows that to have three in a row I think really would have been quite tough and and to my eyes anyway or to my taste I guess it I prefer a final a playoff final to be to be won by a team for scoring a goal in in regulation time or extra time rather than you know you can't split them like it was in the championship in league two you can't split them in normal time extra time and then even after 10 11 12 penalties you can't split them i i I prefer it like this and yeah i don't know about sunny by the time the goal went in it was hard to believe it because we were we were just getting ready for pens again. <laughs> yeah, I'd kind of gone a bit delirious by that point, you know, because there'd been a goal disallowed just before that as well. So you were kind of you'd gone through all the gamut of emotions there. Um, you know, a, a friend of mine was talking about you know you play forty nine EFL matches, none of them are penalties. So why why ever settle a game with penalties? So it, it kind of proved the rule that you know there can actually be a winner played with football rather than this, you know completely alien concepts in the EFL of a penalty shootout. It's a great header, Barry, isn't it? I mean, Harry Isted had been so good in goal for Barnsley and you sort of think maybe he could have done a bit better, but there's just, it's impossible to talk about Josh Windass scoring a brilliant winning goal in a playoff final without mentioning his dad, isn't it? Yeah, well, I, I was doing the online commentary for The Guardian and you know announced this sensational goal, which, which was more or less the last not kick header of the game. And uh, then in the entry afterwards, I referred to Josh as Dean accidentally. So, you know, he's always going to have trouble <laughs> getting out of dad's shadow. Uh, Dean's goal for Hull against Bristol City 15 years ago, I would argue was a better goal, but a no less important one. Um, I mean, and after the game, Sky Sports grabbed Josh Windus immediately uh, for some reaction. And he said that was probably the worst standard of game you'll ever watch. The standard from both teams was shocking, to be honest. There was no real quality in the show, but luckily we got the winning goal. And I'll be honest, I didn't think the game was that bad. The first half was quite dull. It was absorbing, but uneventful. And then the game sort of sprung into life in, in the second half. Barnsley had a penalty denied, which should have been given. And three minutes later, Adam Phillips got a straight red for a, a, a kind of late challenge on Lee Gregory. And I thought it was a harsh red. 
it wasn't reckless, it wasn't dangerous, it wasn't malicious. I'm aware other opinions are available, and I've seen people give other opinions, but uh, I, I did think it was a harsh red. But the thing is, Barnsley actually played a lot better with 10 men than they did with 11, and they were outstanding. And obviously it's cruel on whoever loses the playoff final, but I think their fans can be very proud of their team because they were excellent despite the numerical disadvantage. They had a brilliant chance to win it with um, Luke Connell, his really bad miss in front of a gaping goal uh, in, in extra time. Uh, as you said, Harry Istade pulled off some remarkable saves, uh, two in particular, uh, and another one out of the top drawer from, from a Barry Bannon shot from outside the, the penalty area. And... Uh, yeah, the, the second half and extra time were, were great as a spectacle for a neutral anyway. And um, Sheffield Wednesday probably just about deserved But I think Barnsley can feel a bit aggrieved and they should also be proud of themselves because they, they were very good. And we have to remember there's a massive disparity in budgets between the two teams. Sheffield Wednesday have Barry Bannon there on 21 grand a week, I think. Windass is on 10 grand a week. There's other players earning big money. Whereas I heard the Barnsley chairman or chief exec on the radio yesterday saying their average wage is, is three grand a month per player or some, or three grand a week, sorry, per player. Uh, and they also have a very young, quite inexperienced side. They're the youngest team in the, the division, I think, uh, whereas Sheffield Wednesday are are the most narrowed and veteran, and they've, they've the oldest average age in the division. On, the, on that red card, I mean, Barnsley fans, they should be proud. A lot of them are still sort of quite angry. Um, the penalty, actually, before the red card, the penalty, Lee Gregory's sort of involved in everything that happens in this game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I can't believe, Ali, that wasn't overturned, that penalty decision. Yeah, I'm pretty bamboozled about this. I'm, I have to be honest... I spent too long having a half-time pint and I didn't actually see it live. <laughs> I was there all three days. What an absolute disgrace to, you know, to your love of the EFL, Ali. But I mean, you are probably forgiven. All three days at Wembley and, uh, you know, mostly cagey games without a ton of massive incidents and I missed one of the biggest ones. Watching it back this morning, I'm, I'm absolutely baffled as to why it wasn't a penalty. To, to my eyes, anyway, Kitching pokes the ball first and Gregory volleys kitching instead of the mm. ball so that's a great um, volley you know yeah it, it's a it's a clean connection a good strike and and i'm very surprised that that wasn't either given live or uh with var which, which obviously was in operation in all three games in, in terms of the red card it's i think the the importance of of that moment uh the way that it in theory, uh, weakened Barnsley, albeit as as Barry said, they were sensational with ten men. And had they scored that counter attack, it would have been one of the great ten man counter attack goals. Um, but uh, you know, I was I always feel a bit dull, sort of going straight back to the laws of the game. But I do occasionally check them just to see what they say because with with a tackle like this, um, a lot of the discourse is always around like 
how many feet did he use and was he in the air or not and were studs showing or not and and actually generally the laws of the game don't refer to many of those things they're just sort of things that we've all collectively kind of decided over time it's a bit like the the last man um and you know a cov- covering defenders and things like that they're, they're not really mentioned in the laws of the game and that's what the referees use so in terms of serious foul play which is what Phillips was sent off for a tackle or challenge that endangers the safety of an opponent or uses excessive force must be sanctioned as serious foul play. Uh, and then I suppose this bit, any player who lunges at an opponent in challenging for, for, for the ball from the front, from the side or from behind, using one or both legs with excessive force or endangers the safety of an opponent is guilty of serious foul play. So I, I, I probably wouldn't have pulled out a red card had I been the referee. I probably would have gone for a yellow, but I also understand why it wasn't overturned by VAR, given that those are the laws. Yeah, I think it's a red. Just do you, yeah? Yeah, I think it's a red because it doesn't doesn't matter if he doesn't like with that force he just misses the player right and i i guess if he goes into the player that's really dangerous challenge i think and i don't think he's in control to the level where he's going i'm intentionally avoiding the player there um so so i'm i'm i, I agree it's sort of one of those orange ones um but yeah i think i don't think they can be angry about that i think they can be furious about the penalty sani you can have your red card thoughts well i mean i think with both both of these incidents i think you know without var you know they'd be as as they were wouldn't they and that's that's the thing isn't it the the great thing about league two is you do lower league football is you do get robust challenges you know and everyone goes and and the game carries on in real time you know there wasn't ooh from from where i was sitting and it looks like you know when the red came out i was surprised but kind of not shocked if you like you know it, it looked like but you know i had the benefit of replays as well where i was sat and with that one you're looking at it and and i'm kind of looking at for intense and is he actually trying to pass the ball is he trying to lunge to get to the ball to play the ball as opposed to actually make a challenge you know i don't know i'm reading too much nuance into it and equally with the with the penalty shot i'm going the other way like in real time it kind of looked quite innocuous like it can happen and then you look at the replay like eight times like eight times (laughs) and on the eighth one i'm like oh he's booted him really clearly there so you know, I think it really is on the edge. And, you know, the thing that's really kind of, I, I found a bit frustrating when I went online was seeing all these people, you know, lots and lots of anger, obviously, but they're naming like the referee and it's football content Twitter, these blue ticks naming the ref and, you know, they've let everyone down, they've ruined the game. Like, really? You know, because 48 other games this season, you're not at VAR and, and those things just kind of go. And um, that disallowed goal, Barry, I mean, a, Will Vox, what a finish that is. And what a great extended celebration. And what was so good was it wasn't like it wasn't like the whole squad realised at the same time. It was like one by one. They each found out it was offside and other players are still celebrating. I just thought, I mean, it must be so <laughs> all right in the end. But at that moment, it was just hilarious. Like a dominoes of people going, ah, oh, shit, that isn't a goal. Well, Darren Moore was a little bit annoyed at the time because... His staff joined in the celebrations and I think he was the only one who realised that it had been disallowed and he was trying to get the players to refocus and he said afterwards, you know, my staff are supposed to be keeping an eye on things like this but they got caught up in the moment and I was worried that, you know, the players wouldn't be able to refocus and see out the, the rest of extra time. Is he the most composed human being you've ever seen? Like, uh, in bear in mind what happened in the semi-final, both disaster in the first leg, 
incredible comeback in the second leg. All of the emotions of of yesterday, um, the stick that he has received, um, some of it horrendous and illegal and uh, the questioning of parts of the fan base about his management at times when the the pressure looked to have got to Wednesday. And honestly, he is the most unflappable human being I think I've ever seen. He just takes it all in his stride, whether it's positive or negative, uh, he is exactly the same. And I just, I just can't imagine what it must be like to be like that. It's, it's incredible. I, I wonder, like, is, is that inherent? Is it learned? I don't know, but he's an amazing man. He, he gave an interesting interview after the game, actually, um, which you probably won't have, have seen because um, you were there. And Joby McEnough, who I think is a terrific pundit and, and a very nice fella, asked him, you know, it's, it's your job to lift the players after a, a game like the, the first leg against Peterborough, but he said, who, who lifts you, you know, before you lift the players? And Moore admitted that, you know, really low after that game and went home and was up sort of pace in the kitchen or whatever till seven o'clock in the morning. And he had was going to give the players a day off and then call them in and for a, a, a debrief and, he and his staff, they showed them every home goal they'd scored at Hillsborough throughout the season. And it worked out that they were averaging, I think, three goals a game at home. And he said, look, you, you can do this. Um, but, yeah, I think he's, he said, you know, I think he's a man of faith and he was leaning on the man upstairs for for comfort and support, which wouldn't really be my thing. But if, if that's what helps, go for it, you know. But... Uh, it was an interesting question that was posed. Yeah, he's a he's a really, he's a, you know, we've always said on our radio show, the nicest man in football is Linvoy Primus, but second is Darren Moore. And he's like such a lovely man. Another interesting story is Barry Bannon, Sani. And I listened to him, um, the Monday Night Club got him on, on the phone from the coach. Um, and he was really interesting because he said, he talked about, you know, he was in the Premier League, but he was getting 10 minutes here and 15 minutes here. And he said, Sheffield Wednesday gave football back to me. Kind of like he got to play every minute of every game. And it's just so interesting that there's a player who's prepared to drop down one or two divisions and has become a total, I don't know how he's played over 350 games, I think for them, but become a complete hero to that football team. Yeah, it kind of shows if if you are willing to do that, you can really exhibit the quality you've got. I remember he was a bit of a joke figure at the time, you know, uh, in his prem days. Was it Villa? He was at, wasn't it? Um, but you know that that Wednesday team has almost been built around him, or at least everything around him is complimentary. And he's allowed to to be the best version of himself. You know, he'll take those pot shots from thirty yards, but he's also willing to make the running defensively as well. You know, there's a few in the first half as well where he's suddenly popping up on the edge of his area, booting the ball away. So he's clearly like got that love for the game and willingness to to do whatever it takes. And, you know, he scored some brilliant goals this season, last season as well. Um and it's been a perfect culmination for him and you know, the, the biggest cheer in the stadium was for Darren Moore lifting the trophy, but the second largest was for, for Barry Bannon. And, you know, he's he's got a lot of love from all the fans because he's just been superb. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And of course, he's very short and he's got, you know, he, he is physically a lot shorter and, and therefore you'd think weaker than some of the players he's up against. And there have been many people questioning uh, whether that could become a problem as he gets older and can you hide a player like that out of possession etc etc he hasn't put a foot wrong 
in or out of possession that I've seen all season for most of last season as well. His his lack of size, if you like, has zero negative impact on him playing at this level. It'll be interesting to see to what extent he can impact games back in the championship. Of course, he's played a lot of championship games for Wednesday as they dropped down and down and, and then eventually were relegated. So um, it, it'll be interesting to see how they approach things next season in terms of can they build a similar team around Bannon uh, in a more physical league where you know the, the midfield is always packed with with ball winners and tenacious players. But it doesn't really matter at this moment in time because he ran the game yesterday. Every touch, whether it's a, a quick pass, bouncing it off a teammate and getting it back, uh, moving into space to, to, to allow himself that extra half second to play the pass. And then every pass, every cross itself, even if it doesn't end up with a teammate, you still think to yourself in the stadium, he, he put that where he wanted to put it and he put backspin or side spin or top spin you know he can do whatever he wants with a, with that left foot and it, it's it's beautiful to watch and there weren't any other players on the pitch yesterday quite like that Nick Ames tweeting if, if just a couple of the sides that flop this year get their acts together and then next season's championship is going to be absolutely insane quality and size are promoted relegated clubs greater than usual has the makings of an epic free-for-all so we look forward to that uh, let's go to the League 2 final uh, on Sunday Carlisle 1 Stockport 1 Carlisle winning 5-4 on penalties uh, it's huge for Carlisle back in League 1 for the first time since 2013-14 they finished 20th in League 2 last season uh, were tipped by some for relegation this year Sunny, did you have them getting anywhere near this? Uh, no is <laughs> the short answer uh, but the, the signs were there that Certainly something could happen, given uh, when Paul Simpson came in the previous season and saved Carlisle from relegation. And in the end, it was comfortable that they survived. And clearly, you know, he's he's loved there. It's his hometown, second spell. Um, and they've they've all bought into to whatever he's been doing. And there's, there's some great little stories in amongst it all as well. Um, Owen Moxon, who started at Carlisle's Carlisle boy, uh, was released and then ended up playing in lower league in Scotland, was a UPS man. Last year, <laughs> delivering Last all year. around Scotland. Yeah, wow. and um, when Paul Simpson came back, um, he, you know, he, he he knew Owen anyway, and eventually Owen found his way back. And he he didn't just order a package and then and it was yeah. him <laughs> delivering it. And he said, "Yeah, you did, didn't boot. you used to be at this club when I was in my first time around? Oh uh, yeah, all right. what are you doing? All right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come down, come down to Brunson Park. I'm I'm driving a brown van with no doors around. <laughs> please, please take me back." <laughs> Uh, so yeah, brilliant, brilliant story for him, uh, Paul Simpson. You know, I think he admitted himself he didn't expect this to happen, but it's it's all down to the players, he says. But I think really it's mostly down to him. Paul Simpson's a real playoff Jonah, wasn't he? Before this, he I think he'd lost five finals. Is that right? Yeah, I think it's four, four or five, wasn't it, as a player <sighs> and as as a, as a manager as well. Yeah, you know, he said after the the Bradford game, he was sick of losing at Wembley. You know, after he, actually in his uh, his post match team talk, when he when he filmed it all, and I did think to myself, you know, don't you want to go with positives? But actually, it kind of kind of gives an idea. He's been there that many times, uh, so yeah, really pleased for him. And they really had to sort of summon high performance levels in the playoffs because the end of their season was was difficult. They they could barely score a goal for the last two or three months of the season. Thankfully, because of you know, I, I always think a, a team that keeps so many clean sheets, you can be very clear that that's the quality of the coaching and, and the management. Um, for, for me, that the base of a team, their out of possession structure and, and how good they are at keeping the ball out of their goal is, is probably the clearest sign 
for a neutral as to whether a team has a, a good manager that's doing good things. And they've been brilliant out of possession and defensively all season. But for genuinely three months, it was it was tough to watch going forward. And, you know, we didn't fancy them heading into the playoffs because of that. Even though in the semi-final against Bradford, they played really well. They, they certainly outperformed my expectations in that game. I still felt that Stockport overall felt just like the stronger team in, in each area of the pitch. It wasn't the case at all. Uh, Stockport's goal, it would have been a shame if that had won a game because it was a fluke. You know, I think he was trying to put a cross in and it loops up off the defender uh, perfectly or not in the case of Carlisle, looping over the, the tallest goalkeeper in the EFL and, and into the net. Uh, and they were absolutely excellent from that point. They didn't lose their composure. Quite the opposite. Uh, it was a bit of a feature of all three games, actually. Coventry got better when they went behind. Carlisle got better when they went behind. Barnsley got better, seemingly, when they went down to 10 men. So there's obviously something, whether it's psychological, I, I don't know. But uh, they were fantastic in, in the second half. Players came off the bench and made a big impact. And, uh, and they 100% deserved um to to go through i i sort of say all that realizing that like the championship player final it was 1-1 it was decided by one person missing a penalty so it, it is difficult to to draw i think too many conclusions from the actual match itself but no doubt that you know it's a romantic story it's it's a bit of a miracle story and, and paul simpson very much at the heart of it just a point on um Stockport's goal so it's Isaac Olafe on that right hand side he goes for that cross and it loops over hits John Mellish and goes in but he then walks towards the corner flag with his arms spread to his side like I'm the best I'm the greatest ever and you're like <laughs> and it affects because I was right by that like for a second I was like did it deflect has he actually just hit that so well <laughs> like, you know but I guess that's his moment in the sun but I think you know one thing I think has become a theme of these playoffs and, and probably future finals as well given the amount of subs you can make is being on the bench isn't necessarily a bad thing you know Carlisle's equaliser from Amari Patrick he was off the bench 84th minute um, and you know for any player who's thinking oh I'm so disappointed not making this, the starting lineup if finals are going this way where the occasion's getting the better of these players actually you know coming on with a level head and, and legs makes a difference and we've seen that uh, throughout the weekend when that goal went in, the, the international commentary said pure Cumbrian bedlam behind the goal, which I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever been to Cumbria. So, I mean, perhaps that is a thing, but I'm intrigued to know what pure Cumbrian bedlam might be. Sorry, Ali, I interrupted you for that. So <laughs> my apologies. No, no, not at all. It was it was worth it. I, that's a phrase that I'll be using now wherever possible. Um, and, and Taylor Charters scoring the winning penalty, 21-year-old uh, from Cumbria. They, they have... Ha they have you know, for League Two clubs, there are certain teams that do very well bringing academy local talent through. But 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 your average EFL club in League One, and League Two actually doesn't have a lot of local players or academy players in their first team. You know, it, it's an industry now that is so geared towards transfers and short contracts, and particularly at that level, one year freebies, etc. It's difficult for for young players to break in. But that's another thing that Carlisle have done really well, and I, I get the feeling from following fans and and. They have a fantastic local journalist called John Coleman who who wins awards every year for his coverage of Carlisle United. And I love following him and, and the sense of pride for that aspect of it as well. The fact that it was a local lad that scored the winning penalty. And there are others in the team as well that have stepped up and, you know, maybe had to replace a uh, an injured star man, uh, but have stepped up and, and kind of done their club and their, their region proud. The, the, the last bit of sort of interesting, well, you'll be the judge analysis, is that... 
the, the penalty shootouts on Saturday and Sunday were won by uh, Rob Edwards' team and Paul Simpson's team. And they both referred afterwards to the FA and gave a lot of credit to the FA and in particular to someone called Chris Markham. So Paul Simpson worked within the England setup in the youth teams for a few years. Rob Edwards as well, a couple of years ago, was part of the uh, FA England youth team setup, I think, with the under 16s. And while they were there, uh, this guy, Chris Markham, who now works at Bolton Wanderers, did a huge study on penalties. Took years of work, looked at every possible aspect, the angle of the run up, you know, what happens as they walk up, how many breaths they take, and, you know, and tried to pick the bones out of it. And I, I, I'm led to believe came up with a sort of list of here's 10 things to think about during a penalty shootout or something along those lines. And if you do all of them, maybe you'll increase your chance of winning by a few percent. And maybe that's the difference between success or, or, or losing. Um, they both referred to that analysis as having been a big part of their preparation for the game. Both of them having been at the FA at the time. I heard um, <laughs> a similar note. Uh, I was reading an article about Luton practicing the penalties and they'd, they'd really, you know, taken that study on board and were practicing. And the youth team goalkeepers were pressed into service so fellas could practice their pens and it got to the stage where one of the Luton players was standing or getting ready to take one and the youth team keeper just had faced so many from him he just went and stood in the corner <laughs> waiting <laughs> I know where you're putting it. <laughs> Just a point on the Wembley PA, right? And I feel like, you know, after three days of having this, you know, obliterating my hearing, you know, maybe maybe it's just melding up, mushed my brain a little bit. But so it, it, I know it's loud, and I'm not the first person to ever say the Wembley PA is loud. But when it gets to the League Two playoff final, and it's obviously not full, and there's like 35,000 there, and it's still blaring out like Dua Lipa and stuff, like I couldn't tell you what the Carlisle United fans were chanting at full time, you know, after, after they'd won. I couldn't tell you. No, in fact, I don't think anyone could. It's <laughs> just, just muted by this just noise. And I think, I don't know, why Why are they not trying to complement the atmosphere? If if the EFL is all about the fans, why are you not doing something to make it... If the PA's there to kind of ramp up the atmosphere and get everyone in, up for it, then you, surely you don't need it for the team that's just won. <laughs> you know, the running theme. Unless, of course... They were singing Dua Lipa. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. And then yeah, it really does, it does work. But, I mean, maybe that, that would be pure Cumbrian <laughs> Bethlehem, of course. It would be. It? Yeah, when, when, when they're all drowned out by Sky Full of Stars. Yeah, when they're all drowned out by, by Coldplay. I really don't know what the well, point is. I mean, don't knock Coldplay. Mrs. Rushton, desperately looking for tickets. Uh, <laughs> can I abuse my position? <laughs> Anyone has a spare one in Naples? She'll be there. Uh, that'll do for part two. <laughs> in part three, uh, we will commiserate with Borussia Dortmund. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Archie Rintut joins us. Hey, Archie. Hello, Max. Mike says, one for Archie. What's German for it's the hope that kills you? Final day in the Bundesliga on Saturday. Dortmund were going to do it. All they had to do was beat Mainz. We could beat Mainz, Archie. What happened? I'm still not sure, Max. I'm still not sure. <laughs> I, I cannot tell you. I, how unique an experience it was on Saturday to see the level of sporting human devastation to witness a live cemetery 
of 80,000 zombies in front of me. I I subtract <laughs> wow. the Mainz fans, but even they were respectful. At full time, there was no music. There was just this kind of murmurs around the ground and the Dortmund players spread out on the pitch just in pure agony. And for context, all Borussia Dortmund had to do was win at home to Mainz and they would be Bundesliga champions for the first time in 11 years. Inside 24 minutes, they were 2-0 down and had missed a penalty having gone 1-0 down through... Sebastian Haller um, was the guy who, let's not forget, came back from cancer to somehow come back on the pitch this season. Um, and it's why I struggle with the phrase bottling. I, I can, I'm happy with blew it, but bottling, there's something, yeah. there's something about that word which just implies weakness and. For me to include Sebastian Haller in that, I can't. I cannot. Don't want to accuse Sebastian Haller of not having the courage at any level, uh, even though he nicked the penalty off Emre Chan, supposedly. But, yeah. Meanwhile, Bayern went 1-0 up early on, uh, played poorly in the second half, Cologne equalised with 10 minutes to go, whilst Dortmund were now 2-1 down, but still throwing everything at it and things just not going in. And then Bayern struck in the 89th minute through Jamal Musiala, meaning that Dortmund had been champions for eight and nine minutes. And still, the only door that Dortmund could break down was in the final minute of stoppage time through Niklas Zula. And then, yeah, I mean, look, I can tell you more about the game in Dortmund and how there were just so many near misses. But it was brutal to witness live. Was it? Was it like those first twenty minutes? Do you remember England played Iceland and were just forgot how to play football? Like, did Dortmund just forget what to do? Because they seemed, you know, they were they were so open, and and they just did they did just just the occasion just get to I them. I think so. There was it was just fear. You saw that that they were overthinking every action because. They still ended up playing well in parts. They still had chances. It's not like they didn't have chances through the game. But you just felt the fear. And also from the fans as well, you could tell that although they roared them back on initially after the first goal, that you could feel the the anguish every time that something didn't go right. And... It started from the pressing from the front, which is what Dortmund have done so well in recent weeks and in the second half of the season that it was kind of left to the defence to to feel that wobbliness. So, yeah, and it's just for Marco Royce, like the guy is a study in the capacity of human suffering. I have never seen anything like it. Like it is unreal. <laughs> the guy moved to Dortmund in 2012 after all of their success under Jurgen Klopp. And since then, whether it's at international level where he got injured right before Germany won the World Cup in 2014 and was the best player in the Bundesliga at the time, or never winning a Bundesliga title in his career, coming close as well under Lucien Favre, not making it. Um, 
long injury layoffs, and now this just... I, I looked at him walking off the pitch on Saturday and I was like, I really hope you have people around you tonight because Lord knows the holes that that guy is falling into. With a different uh, hat on, Archie, I had the chance to actually talk to Sebastian Kale, the sporting director at Russia Dortmund before the game. And, you know, one of the questions he got asked was about, you know, how many, how are the players, how many tickets are the players getting for the family? And he talks about, you know, how they're trying to get accommodate everyone. And it, it was that proper kind of cup final sort of build up to it. And, you know, Edin Terzic as well, he, he's, a, he's a fan, he's a boyhood fan of, of Dortmund and stuff. It, I mean, it does kind of feel like the whole weight the whole weight of it all, all the expectation, you know, it wasn't, they hadn't treated it like a normal game. Oh, uh, I, I, I don't know. I, they were making a point in the press conference on Thursday, um, Edin Terzic was that they were treating everything as normal as possible. And maybe, and that's what makes me think maybe they should have treated it slightly differently. But then again, the margins with which things went wrong on Saturday, you think, it, it made me think back to, there was a goal that Dortmund scored the other week where Jude Bellingham hit the crossbar, the ball looped up miles into the air, bounced down, and then went into the roof of the net. And what do you describe that as? That's just pure luck. That is pure luck that the ball spins that way. And just everything on Saturday seemed to spin the wrong way. And the more, I think, the penalty miss was the, was the true turning point in that game. Because that was when the heads of all the teammates went down and was like, is this really going to be our day? I don't think so. And look, there were people who, I, there were people selling shirts before the game with German champions 2023, Borussia Dortmund. And I was oh, like, no. like uh oh. Even, even during the game, like sometime in the second half, I, I saw them preparing the stage like well before the players were there for potential winners ceremony because like that's protocol i get it you have to do it you have to prepare that but midway through the second half one of like the confetti cannons like just a sole confetti cannon went off on the far side <laughs> of the pitch oh, and i'm like if a player's seen that it's like yeah i get the situation we're in here lads do you think i need it any any more clear to me and i was like oh that can't help whoever's on that right hand uh. side can't help you don't need a premature confetti cannon, do you? And so look, Bayern win the title again. <laughs> I'm like, it's so frustrating, isn't it? I mean, did, like Barry said this to me on Sunday, did Mainz even want Bayern to win the title? Mate, it was the most surreal interview I've done this season. I spoke to the Mainz coach, Bo Svensson, after it. And he, he, he said to me, look, uh, I wasn't planning on us really getting anything from this game because Dortmund have been so good recently. <laughs> I, <laughs> that makes it worse. That makes it worse. Doesn't it, it doesn't it? Doesn't it? Um, but the thing with Bayern, like, it's, uh, with no spoilers, it is giving succession a run for its money in terms of the backstabbing and the entertainment. And, like, because the whole thing with Bayern is, like, the... Everyone had been talking in the build-up to this about whether Oliver Kahn, the CEO, and Hassan Salihamidzic, the sporting directors, would lose their jobs because of how badly this season has gone on so many levels. And it emerged straight after full-time that they were both losing their jobs, uh, regardless of what happened. Um, that had been shared with both of them uh, on the Thursday. Now, Hassan Salihamidzic was at the game in Cologne. Oliver Kahn wasn't. 
And that's because the club said that the talks with Oliver Kahn, where they sacked him, didn't go too well. What does that mean? One journalist on like a very famous talk show here uh, said, and this is very much implied, that Oliver Kahn had nearly come to blows physically with the Bayern hierarchy who were sacking him because he was so angry about what happened. Oliver Kahn denies this and said that it was the worst day of his life, the fact that he wasn't able to attend uh, Cologne Bayern. And then you move to the figure of Thomas Tuchel, who, like, is a study in passive aggression. Like, after the game, like, he's still fuming about the way that things have gone, and yet Bayern won. And, like, the Bayern fans I know are like, well, it was nice to feel something uh, (laughs) at the end of the season. But we're still pretty shit. Um, Now, Archie, can you do Bundesliga 2 in 45 seconds? Because we've been gone on too long today. We have. Okay, I'm going to round everything up in a minute. Okay? I'm going to round up the fact that Schalke went down, which is very sad and product of mismanagement. Borkham staying up's an amazing story. Stuttgart into the playoff against, wait for it, Union Berlin made the Champions League, which is an amazing story as well. Uh, unapologetically uh, defensive football for the win. Uh, Max, if you like long balls, you'll enjoy that in the Champions League next season. Good. Great. Stuttgart play Hamburg again because in the second division on the final day, Heidenheim just had to win to go up. They went 2-0 down. Hamburg went one up away at Sandhausen. Hamburg fans on the pitch in Sandhausen in the 90th minute whilst the game's still going on in Regensburg where Heidenheim are playing. The announcer in Sandhausen says, congrats, guys, you're up. (laughs) The verbal confetti cannon there. (laughs) However, as one commentator made clear, internet signal is not great in Sandhausen. So, and like, internet's not great in Germany. That's a different point. Point is, Heidenheim had made it 2-1 by that point. They then scored one through a penalty, which wasn't a penalty. And then, in 11 minutes of added time, so they'd already scored one in the 94th minute, Tim Kleindienst, which means Tim small service in German, scored the winning goal for Heidenheim, and Hamburg hearts were broken yet again. They're into the playoff once again. And, yeah, like, German football seems to have way more suffering in it than I think... I've seen in English football. There is a level of fatalism. Even Bayern are like, well, guys, we've done it pretty badly in 2012 and 1999. It's insane. Oh, and the same happened in the third division as in the second division. Yeah, absolute carnage. Speaking of suffering, finally, Nicholas says, I'm having a vasectomy on the 16th of June. What should I listen to? Will there be a pod? I don't want anything too amusing as so as not to affect my sutures. Uh, there will be a pod on the 15th of June, so you can wait a day and listen to that. Thank you for letting us know, Nicholas. We'll add it to our database and we wish you the best of luck with that procedure. And that'll do for today's pods. Thank you, Sani. Thank you. Pleasure. Uh, thanks, Ali. Thank you very much for having me on. That must be the first time the word sutures has been said on this uh, famous and storied podcast. <laughs> well, actually, I'm not too sure. Actually, we've had a lot of vasectomies. Uh, thanks, Archie. Thank you, Max. Cheers, Baz. Cheers. Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Daniel Stevens. We'll be back on Thursday. This is The Guardian. <laughs> 